the weariness, even a touch of fear in his voice. The corporate world was always uncertain, and never more so than now. He loved brownies, a nice way to welcome him home. The car eased to a stop. Her hands clenched on the wheel. She heard the rumble of an SUV behind her. She checked the mirror. Cherry Sue Richards. She had to make up her mind. Now, this instant. If she turned right, if she drove a mile and a half, turned onto a rutted gray road that jolted the car, streaked the gleaming blue paint with so much dust that Ralph kidded her, asked whether she'd been plowing the fields, if she drove as fast as she dared up that narrow road to the cabin nestled among a grove of willows, Paul would be waiting. She knew how he would look. Thick curly black hair, dark eyes, sensuous lips. He'd probably not shaved yet. He'd be bare-chested, his old, paper-thin Levi's hung on slim hips. Paul. Damn him. As the SUV stopped behind her, Teresa gunned the motor, turned to the right, the fever raging within her. Frank Salter moved stiffly in the mornings. He welcomed the late March sun, a cheerful precursor to spring. Only a few more days and it would be April. In summer the heat from the low country sun rolled against his skin hot as oil and just as soothing, yet he loved the crisp sunny days of spring. He smiled. He might be stiff, but arthritis never kept a man from fishing. He had his day planned. The lagoon off belted Kingfisher Road was full of crappy bass and bream, and he was just the man to land himself a mess of good eating. He took his time as he walked down the crushed oyster-shell walk to the mailbox by the side of the road. He didn't expect anything much. Too late in the month for bills. Maybe a note from his daughter, but Sue liked email better than writing letters, and every week sent a cheerful message, catching him up on the kids. Megan off at school in Australia, if that didn't beat the band, and Tom, who'd decided hang-gliding off mountains in Montana had a lot more pizzazz than college. Frank shook his head as he pulled open the mailbox. Kids today. He grabbed a handful of magazines. Sports Illustrated, Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, Fly Fisherman, some circulars from the grocery and the Walmart on the mainland, and a letter and a postcard. Oh, hey, the card was from Tom in Butte. Grandad, wish you were here. Almost as much fun as our trip on the Amazon. Lots cooler. Love, Tom. Frank was still grinning when he glanced at the long, gray, official-looking envelope with the return address of the warden at the state penitentiary. Frank's smile froze, slipped away. He no longer felt the spring-like warmth of the sun, or heard the honk of northward-bound geese, or noticed the swarm of noceums swirling around him as he stared at the long, gray envelope. He hadn't received official letters of any kind since he'd retired as the island's chief of police. He told all his friends when they met for coffee at Parati's that he didn't miss the job. He didn't tell them how he had to steel himself not to respond when a siren shrieked, or how he sometimes worried about the drugs being unloaded late at night in hidden inlets at the docks of million-dollar houses. He insisted that Pete Garrett, the new young chief, was doing fine. Pete didn't know the people yet, not as Frank knew them where they worked and how many kids they had and who had cancer and all the other heartbreaks. 
hidden abuse, kids on drugs, and love dragged and tattered to nothing by troubles heaped on troubles. Frank pulled his jackknife from his pocket, neatly slit the envelope. The paper was fancy, office-proud, crinkly onion sheet, but the message was scrawled by hand. Dear Frank, thought you should know. Judd Hamilton's been paroled. I've got a trustee who keeps his ears open. He says Hamilton's out to get you. You remember Hamilton? Back in 90, he... Frank crumpled the letter into a tight, hard ball. His mouth tightened into a thin, straight line. He remembered Judd Hamilton and the flicker of sheer hatred in Judd's eyes when he stared across the courtroom at Frank. Laura Neville Fleming was halfway down the steps, almost to the cabins for the crew, when she stopped. She would wait until tomorrow, tell Captain Joe she'd changed her mind, tell him to turn Leisure Moment around and sail back to the island. After all, Leisure Moment was hers to do with as she pleased. But what would Keith say? Did she even care what Keith said? Laura turned and trudged slowly and carefully up the companionway to the main deck. She shouldn't have had that last drink. It was a little hard to walk, and the lights blurred in her eyes. She'd go to the stern, lean over, and gulp in fresh air. The dizziness would pass. She was Laura Neville, and she never drank too much. That would be unseemly. She gently smoothed the skin on the bridge of her nose with her thumb. She mustn't frown. Nothing made a woman look older than lines on her face. This whole evening had been odd uncomfortable. She didn't like the young people from Keith's office. They laughed too loud, and often she didn't understand what they thought was so funny. And she didn't like Keith's booming voice, or the way his eyes had followed that girl—what was her name? Oh, yes, Cameron—when she walked across the saloon, and that dress. Spaghetti straps and a black silk that clung to her. She might as well have been naked. Laura stumbled. She gave a little exclamation of pain. Who'd left a deck chair here? She would speak to Captain Joe tomorrow. Things were simply not being done correctly. It was so easy, wasn't it, if people only did the right thing? She reached the stern, leaned against the railing, looked down at the wake from the propellers, the streaks of foam as shiny as satin ribbons in the moonlight. Her head ached. Tears stung her eyes. Why did she have to be so unhappy? But she wasn't going to cry. Neville's didn't cry. It all happened so quickly that her scream clogged in her throat. The violent push from behind, the crack of her hip as she banged over the railing, and the hideous realization that she was falling into the wash of the propellers. The propellers. Meredith Muir dropped her pink cotton shorty pajamas on the floor. She glanced down in disdain. Stupid pajamas. Nothing like the scarlet silk bikini lingerie from Victoria's Secret hidden at the back of the closet in the bedroom of the cabana. She sped past the thought that she hadn't needed to hide the lingerie. No one ever looked at the back of that closet. Nobody cared. Her pleasure seeped away until she glanced at the full-length mirror, at her smooth young body, the breasts high and firm, her hips curved, her legs long and shapely. She remembered the feel of the silk, and the even more delicious sensation as the lingerie dropped away. At first she didn't hear the ring of the telephone. She stood irresolute for a moment, glancing at the bedside clock. It wasn't the right time for a call. 
not the call that mattered. It would probably be somebody who needed a ride to school or wanted to copy her homework. School was stupid. Kids were stupid. She wasn't just a school kid anymore. Meredith shivered. Suddenly she felt cold, no longer warmed by her thoughts. She'd better get dressed. The damn phone. The peals continued. Meredith gave an impatient sigh and reached for the receiver. Her face drawn in a worried frown, Kay Nevis stepped out on the deck, looked at the sun-splashed inlet. She'd planned to get to school early this morning. There was always so much to do, and there was that wonderful new video retracing the Lewis and Clark expedition that should arrive today. But she wanted a moment of peace. The deck had always afforded her peace. She moved slowly across the wooden planks to the railing. Kay loved the marsh, loved the way it changed by seasons, the cord grass a rich yellow-green in spring and summer, a soft downy brown in fall the song of the frogs in the spring, the scampering of the raccoons in winter. Spring was her favorite time of the year. In April the painted buntings arrived, the green-winged teals headed north, sulfurs and painted ladies and monarchs drifted near the plants like pieces of angel wings, their beauty yet another easily seen miracle. Kay shaded her eyes against the brilliant sunlight, but she wasn't looking at the still green water or the pelicans skimming low in search of food. She wasn't thinking about the marsh she loved. She felt isolated and disturbed. The perfection of her quiet way of life would not return until she'd met a terrible responsibility. If only she didn't know. But she did know, and her knowledge imposed a duty. She had to know what was right, no matter how difficult. Laurel